good morning and uh, happy new year. Uh, it's wonderful to see you at church uh, this morning. Um, my name is Huey, if we haven't met before. Um, and uh, yeah, it's wonderful to kick off a new year together uh, as a church family. And uh, it's wonderful to be able to welcome uh, some new faces among us uh, as well this morning. Uh, well, keep your Bibles open uh, at Titus chapter 1. We're going to be uh, uh, working our way through this uh, wonderful chapter this morning. Um, and uh, can I just uh, keep on encouraging everyone uh, to bring your own Bibles to church? Uh, and it would be helpful if you can bring a paper Bible to church. Maybe I'm just getting a little bit old-fashioned, but, uh, you know, when you have a phone and you're flicking through, uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to... Uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe, maybe you, can, you can cope with that. But uh, often I think it's helpful to know um, how the Bible flows and where in the Bible you are and that sort of thing. And I think uh, when you're looking on your phone or just looking on the screen, uh, it's very hard to get a sense of how the Bible sort of hangs together. And so uh, my encouragement to you is uh, whenever you come to church, bring a paper Bible if you can. And if you don't have a paper Bible, uh, then you can always pick one up at the back uh, from our, our ushers. But uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then uh, we'll get underway. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, our gathering this morning. Uh, thank you for the great uh, privilege of uh, knowing you as our God and, uh, and uh, knowing our Lord Jesus um, as our King and as our Saviour. Uh, we thank you that you are the God who never lies, as we've just read, and we pray, Father, that you would help us to listen uh, to your truth, uh, knowing that the things that you say to us are always uh, for your glory, but also for our good. And so please help us to listen well, and please help us to respond by trusting you even more and uh, living our lives aligned to the things that you say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, I wonder whether you've broken a bone before. Uh, hands up if you've broken uh, a bone in your body. Uh, most of the kids, uh, not many of the adults. Uh, we, many of us have broken bones before. Um, I've, I've broken a bone uh, in my left arm. Uh, when I was younger, I, I broke my arm. Uh, I was riding my bike. Um, I, I was doing a wheelie, uh, trying to impress a girl. Um, I was five years old. Um, and unfortunately, I fell backwards on my bike and uh, made a clean break. Uh, and now uh, my, my uh, arm is deformed. It's actually bent. Um, and so I've been told that the only way to get my crooked arm straightened is to go to an orthopedic surgeon uh, who can kind of reset my bones. Uh, now... We're beginning a new series today, uh, looking at, the, at uh, uh, Paul's wonderful letter to uh, Titus in the New Testament. And uh, I want you to notice that in this letter, uh, Paul is writing to his young ministry friend Titus because he wants Titus to straighten out what is crooked. To straighten out what is crooked. Uh, in fact, if you have a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 5, have a look with me at chapter 1, verse 5 in your Bibles. Uh, listen to what Paul says there. Paul says, This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order, or what remained into order. 
Uh, the word translated uh, as order there comes from the Greek word orthos, which means to make straight something that is crooked. Uh, that's where we get, you know, orthopedic surgeons from. Uh, their job is to uh, set straight uh, crooked bones. Uh, that anyone, uh, is there anyone here who's an orthodontist? No? Um, I, I, I do know we do have some orthodontists among us, but, uh, you know, orthodontists, their job is to um, set your teeth straight if they're crooked, isn't it? Uh, that's, that's the kind of word that's being used here. Uh, but this morning, I want to ask the question, therefore, what is needed to straighten out a crooked church? Or perhaps it might be more helpful to ask it the other way around. What is needed to prevent a faithful church from becoming crooked? Uh, it's not an academic question because all around us we see churches that were once faithful but who have now lost their way. I wonder whether you can think of uh, any of these churches. Uh, many churches are dying. What were once faithful and vibrant churches are no longer in existence. Often this has happened within the short space of a generation. What is needed in order to prevent a faithful church from becoming crooked? Well, if you have a look at uh, Titus 1, um, it's very hard to miss Paul's answer to this question. What is needed in order to straighten out a crooked church? Uh, what is needed uh, to prevent a faithful church from becoming crooked? Well, it's the truth of God's word. That's what is needed. And you can see it in the way the truth is highlighted again and again and again in this passage, can't you? Uh, have a look with me at verse 1. Uh, Paul speaks about the knowledge of the truth. In verse 2, Paul speaks about the God who never lies, but always speaks the truth. In verse 9, Paul speaks about the trustworthy, uh, the trustworthy word which contains the truth. In verse 10, Paul warns about those who deceive and do not speak the truth. In verse 12, he speaks about the culture of lying and not speaking the truth on the island of Crete. In verse 14, he speaks about those who turn away from the truth. Can you see it? He speaks about the truth and the importance of truth again and again and again. In fact, uh, what Paul says in the introduction to his letter is that his whole purpose in life is to help God's people understand the truth. That's what Paul existed for after he became a Christian and was given a special job or mandate from God. You can see it there in verse 1, can't you? Verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In other words, Paul has become a slave of God, and Paul has been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ in order to help people know the truth of the gospel. And yet, here's the thing, friends. Did you notice that knowing the truth always leads to godliness of living? Knowing the truth always leads to godliness of of living, it accords with godliness, says Paul. Uh, many years ago, my uh, father um, 
without my permission and uh, without the permission of our church wardens, planted a pomegranate tree uh, in our backyard. I'm sorry, church wardens, uh, it's still there. Uh, for many years, it didn't produce any fruit. Uh, year after year, we would go uh, into the backyard, uh, excitedly expecting there to be fruit, but year after year after year, uh, there was no fruit to be found. Now, if you had a fruit tree, and year after year after year, there was no fruit on the tree, what would you conclude about the tree? What would you conclude about the tree? Well, uh, any reasonable person will conclude that either the tree dead or the tree is very unwell, <laughs> very sick, and something drastic needs to be done, don't you think? But you see, what Paul is saying here is that knowing the truth of God's word will always lead to the fruit of godliness. How are you going in growing in godliness in your life? It's very clear to me that many of us are growing in godliness in, uh, in leaps and bounds, uh, producing lots of fruit that can only come from the truth of the gospel in our lives. Uh, it's actually a wonderful joy as a pastor to see uh, many people in church who uh, keep on feeding on God's word and keep on producing gospel fruit in their lives. It's a wonderful joy. And yet I am often concerned that there are some of us who have been coming to church for many years and yet there has been very little discernible growth in godliness. No change in character, no change in serving God and serving others. It's a concern, isn't it? Further, it's possible to be somebody who is very active at church and yet is not growing in godly character, which is what matters most, isn't it? Sometimes it's very easy to look busy at church and do lots of tasks at church without working on what matters most, which is your godliness. What God says is that a genuine knowledge of the truth will always, always lead to godliness. What is the basis of Paul's aim of teaching the truth to God's people? Well, uh, if you have a look at verse 2, the basis of Paul's ministry is the solid hope of eternal life. In other words, Paul's purpose in life, you know, to share the knowledge of the truth of God's word with people is because he understands that those who understand the truth will have the hope of eternal life. Notice this isn't a flimsy hope. It's not a wishful thinking, for he says that this hope was promised by the very God who never lies, even before time began, he says. And this hope was planned by God to be brought to light through the preaching of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles. You see, friends, the reason why it's so important for you and me to not only know the truth of the gospel, but 
to allow the truth of the gospel to shape our lives so that we're growing in godliness is because of what is at stake, which is eternity. Those who know the truth and grow in godliness are those who know eternal life. Those who don't know the truth and don't grow in godliness are those who do not know eternal life. There is nothing more important than knowing the truth that leads to godliness. Do you agree? Do you believe this? Is God shaping you to grow in godly character? Now, it's because the knowledge of the truth is so important to the health and vitality of the church uh, that Paul instructs Titus to put in place appropriate leaders in the church in every town on the island of Crete, he says. It's likely that the people of Crete um, heard the gospel um, when certain people from Crete, Cretans, uh, heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and then brought it over uh, to the island of Crete itself. But even though there was a young church in Crete, um, it seems like there was still a lot of work to do. Uh, There was still a lot of work remaining and And so Paul leaves Titus to finish this work. If you actually trace through the ministry of Titus uh, throughout the New Testament, it's very interesting. He's often sort of uh, placed in very difficult situations in churches to kind of sort out the mess. It was a bit like, you know, an uh, SAS kind of person deployed to sort out the mess uh, of churches. Further, uh, you may have noticed that the people Titus is to establish as leaders on the island of Crete, are described in verse 5 as elders. Do you see it there? Um, They're described as elders. Literally, this means older people. For it is usually the case, isn't it, that older people have the maturity for leadership. Interestingly, these elders are described in verse 7 as overseers. And so it seems, at least in Paul's mind, that elders and overseers are one in the same person. Now, uh, that may be a bit confusing, but because uh, in the Anglican uh, tradition, the elder, or the presbyter, which is the Greek word that is used here, is the senior minister. It's Kevin Kim, uh, who, lives door, uh, who lives next door. He's the, the, the presbyter, or the elder. And the overseer which is the word bishop in the Greek, is, I mean, do do you guys even know who our bishop is? Who's the bishop of South Sydney? Michael Stead. Yeah, most of you didn't even know who your bishop was, right? But, But you see, what is more important to understand is not simply what Anglican tradition tells us, but what the Bible is speaking about when it's talking about elders or overseers. Uh, In our context, I think um, our elders and overseers will not only be people like me or the other ministers that are around, but it would be people um, who are in leadership uh, in our church, Uh, our growth group leaders, for example, who week by week um, teach the truth of God's word. Uh, These are leaders who are appointed not elected. In the church, 
you don't elect leaders like it's some sort of democracy. No, you appoint them. You appoint uh, suitable people, appropriate people, to be the leaders of God's flock. However, did you notice that the stress in this passage is on the character of the leaders in the church? Uh, what God sees as most important is the, the moral character of the person in question. For one, they must be people of good reputation. And so, for example, you can see in verse 6, they are to be people who are above reproach. Uh, in the very next verse, uh, that word is used again. They are to be above reproach. Uh, some translations uh, use the word blameless here, but uh, this isn't talking about, you know, people who are perfect. Rather, it's talking about people who are of good character, who are not open to moral blame in ways that could tarnish not only their reputation, but the reputation of the gospel. Uh, you might remember many years ago, uh, the great cycling champion Lance Armstrong uh, confessed on Oprah that he had used performance-enhancing drugs uh, for many years to win all his, uh, uh, I don't know what you call them, championships, Tour de France's or whatever they were. Uh, after the confession, sales of products that Armstrong endorsed went into freefall. Uh, his line of clothing tanked, his bikes didn't sell, his charity was in tatters. They all went into serious decline. For you see, your reputation endorses your product. And so if your reputation fails, then it casts serious uh, doubts on your product. Of course, our Christian leaders are not you know, selling bikes or peddling for profit. But in a very similar way, the character of Christian leaders endorses the gospel to a watching world, doesn't it? That's why in what follows, Paul is at pains to list the kind of character that is required of Christian leaders. Now, I don't know whether you find this a surprise, but did you notice the first thing that he mentions when he starts listing the character of, of, of leaders uh, in this passage? I don't know what you would um, expect to see first. But in verse 6 onwards, you see that when it comes to the character of Christian leaders, the home life is so important. And so in verse 6, the Christian leader must be the husband of one wife. I don't think this means that single people can't be a leader in the church, uh, nor do I think this means that a person who has been divorced and later remarried uh, can never be a, a leader in a church. But it is talking about the character of faithfulness, isn't it? You don't want a person who is an adulterer to be a Christian leader. You don't want a person who is addicted to pornography to be a Christian leader. You do not want somebody with a wandering eye to be a Christian leader. But secondly, in verse 6 again, 
the children of Christian leaders must be believers, says Paul. Now, again, I don't think you are automatically disqualified from leadership if, you know, one of your children uh, are not professing Christians. I know many godly parents who have had the heartbreak of one of their children uh, leaving the faith, uh, at least for, for, a, for a time. You know, some return to the faith, uh, others don't. And yet what Paul is speaking against here are Christian parents who have lost control of their homes such that, you know, their children are allowed to be wild and disobedient and doing what they like and disrespecting their parents as a matter of course. That's what Paul is speaking against. Uh, when I got married, um, I remember one of my uh, mentors saying that I was about to become the pastor of a little church. A very wise saying, I think. Uh, because in a sense, it's true, isn't it? When you get married and you start your own family, the husband in particular becomes the pastor of a little church. And so if you can't lead a little church, if you can't keep a little church in order, well, how does it make sense for you to be placed in charge of a bigger church with greater responsibilities for the welfare of others. Your home life matters, says Paul. However, if you are a leader, it's not just your private character that matters, because it's your public character that matters as well, isn't it? Now, that's why Paul goes on to outline the public character of the Christian leader in verses that follow. And you can easily see the relevance of this because in some sense, Christian ministry and leading a, a church is a public ministry, isn't it? You're always interacting with people. And so godliness matters. Uh, notice in verse 7, he, he gives uh, five negatives. Five negatives. Uh, follow along with me there. Uh, Paul says that the leader must not be arrogant. That is... Don't choose leaders who just think or speak about themselves. Further, they must not be quick-tempered. That is, they must not be people who, you know, fly off the handle if uh, people disagree with them or if they're put under any sort of strain. Further, they must not be a drunkard nor violent. Uh, often those two things go together, isn't it? Uh, when people become drunk they often become violent. But a Christian leader must not be a bully, either physically or non-physically, in order to get their own way. And finally, they must not be greedy for gain. How many Christian leaders have fallen and brought down churches because they have used their positions for financial or material gain? The common denominator of all of these negatives, I think, is that of selfishness. You cannot be a leader who follows Jesus, who selfishly gave up his life for the church, and be a selfish leader who can only think of themselves. 
But Paul doesn't just give negatives of what leaders are are not to be like. Notice he also gives positives. And so in verse 8, the Christian leader must be hospitable. Uh, Literally, the word hospitable is to be a lover of strangers. Uh, If I can give a bit of a challenge to our existing leaders, it would be to think very hard about hospitality this year. If you are a leader... Are you making room in your lives and in your homes, not just for your friends, but for strangers, for people who join us at church who are not well known to you? Further, if you are a leader, you must be a lover of good, with the good being defined by God rather than the world. You must be self-controlled, for you cannot love God and others if you are constantly losing control of yourself. You must be upright and just and do what is fair. You must be holy and set apart for God's work, which is not simply a, a hobby, but a life's work that requires every fibre of your being. Finally, you must be disciplined, for in our sinfulness, godly leadership does not come easily, but needs constant work. Now, friends, this is a very different picture of leadership to what the world sees as good leadership, isn't it? I mean, if you go for a job interview for a managerial position uh, in a big corporation, Uh, How many of us have been to uh, job interviews in the last few years for managerial leadership positions? Uh, It's a few of us. Uh, My guess is that when you went for that job interview, no one asked you, are you faithful to your spouse? Is that right? Uh, No one asked you, how is your parenting going? If you have children. No one asked you, are you growing in your self-control? My guess is that they would be much more interested in things like how confident you are, how ambitious you are, how able you are to do the task than they are in your moral character. But why is Christian character so important for leadership in the church. Why is Christian character so important? I've been thinking about this all week, and I think it's because in Titus, there is a very close connection between knowing the truth of the gospel and Christian character, the truth that accords with godliness. And so if you are somebody who is of godly character, it's probably because you know the truth. Alternatively, if you are a person with ungodly character, then there's a very good chance that it's because you do not know the truth. That's why Paul goes on to say that the leader's role is to uphold the truth of the gospel by teaching the truth and rebuking others who oppose the truth. And you can see that in verse 9, can't you? Have a look with me at verse 9. He says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, Now, brothers and sisters, uh, I'm so thankful to God that in our church family, we have good and godly leaders. Uh, I think we have terrific leaders, and uh, they do a lot of good um, for our church family and for the proclamation of the gospel here. But uh, if you are a leader in our church family here this morning, my guess is that you can see the application of these, uh, of these verses very clearly to you. And uh, perhaps a good exercise for you is to go slowly through this passage uh, in your own time and let God's word convict you of the areas of your life and my life that, that we need to grow in and to ask for God's help that he would do this work in us um, throughout the course of this year. And yet, uh, if you are not a leader in our church family, then I want to encourage you not to see this passage as just something that you can switch off from. For here's the thing. Did you notice that there's nothing really remarkable about the kind of character traits that Paul lists out here? That is, these character traits are not simply character traits for those who are leaders. I mean, it's not like God says to leaders, you know, you are not to be drunk nor violent, but he says to the rest of the church, well, since you're not a leader, you can do whatever you like. Now, this is what godliness looks like, and leaders must model this kind of godliness because God wants all of us to grow in these ways. In fact, that's why it's very natural for older people to be leaders because you would expect that as you grow older, you are growing in godliness and in the kinds of character traits that you see in this passage. The great tragedy in the church, however, is that some people are content to stay spiritual babies forever. And so if you are not young anymore, I want to ask you the question, uh, why are you not a leader by now? If you're not young anymore, why are you not a leader by now? Now, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of good reasons for, for why it's not good for certain people to be in leadership, which has nothing to do with godliness. Uh, some people perhaps can't articulate themselves very well, and therefore uh, it, it's not the best to put them in positions of leadership where they're teaching other people. Uh, others might suffer from debilitating illness or certain life circumstances or situations that make leadership very hard and perhaps not the the wise thing to do. But I think it's more common that people don't become leaders because they never grow up. Is that true? Is that true of you? They keep making excuses for why they shouldn't lead or for why they shouldn't take responsibility in the church. Don't let that be you, says God. Pray to God to make you a leader for desiring to be a leader in the church 
is to desire something that is very noble, Paul says in another part of the New Testament. Now, why is it so important to have good leaders who will guard the truth? Why is this so vitally important for the church? Well, if you read on, it's because there are so many who peddle destructive lies. You can see it there in verse 10, which begins with the word for. Uh, why are we to have good, godly, appropriate leaders? For, verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. It seems that on the island of Crete, there were many people who were false teachers. Who were these false teachers? Well, we're not given a lot of detail about them, but uh, you can see there in verse 10 that they are described as the circumcision party. And uh, later in verse 14, they are described as people devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And so it seems like what these people were saying was that if you genuinely want to know God, and if you genuinely want to know salvation, you not only have to trust in the blood of Jesus, but you need to follow all these rules, often man-made rules. You need to be circumcised, for example, even though Jesus doesn't require circumcision, especially uh, for Gentiles. Or you need to do all these religious commands that religious leaders have made up if you truly and genuinely want to be in the faith. That's what is commonly called legalism. Now, friends, I want you to see the attractiveness of legalism. Have you ever been attracted to this way of thinking? It's a very attractive way of thinking. Do you know, do you know why? It's because legalistic thinking seems like it's protecting godliness. And so, for example, if you say that you must never smoke if you want to be a genuine Christian, or you must never drink, or you must always give 10% of your income to church, then it seems like you are concerned for godliness, doesn't it? It seems like you're trying to protect godliness. But it's a lie. For legalism doesn't protect godliness, Rather, legalism limits godliness and restricts godliness. For you can be somebody who doesn't smoke and yet still be arrogant. You can be somebody who never drinks but still be violent. You can give 10% of your income when you, you're actually rich enough to give much more than that. You see, man-made rules and regulations will never produce the kind of godliness that God is after in his people. That's why false teachers are never godly in their character in the end. It's because legalism or false teaching never produces godliness. If you have a look at verse 16, for example, it says, they, that is, false teachers, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is exactly what Jesus taught, isn't it? When he says of false teachers, you will recognize them 
not only by their teaching, but by their fruit. Why is this important? Well, it's because if you believe false teaching, which is based in legalism, and what you need to do, rather than what Jesus has done for you, once and for all, on the cross, for your sins and for your salvation, then your eternal life is at risk. That's why Paul is so concerned about this. In verse 11, Paul speaks about whole families being uprooted in their faith because of these false teachers. That's why he's so concerned about what is happening. Further, it's important because we live in a world where lies are so common, don't we? It was especially like that on the island of Crete. Uh, that's why Paul says in verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Very harsh thing to say, isn't it? But he's quoting from the writing of a well-known philosopher from Crete who himself had written, had recognized that the people of Crete were stereotypically liars. It's not saying that everyone was on Crete uh, was a liar, but sometimes stereotypes are right, aren't they? And so, for example, if I ask, uh, what are Americans like? What would you say? <laughs> what was that? Can you call that out? Stupid. Okay. <laughs> There's a stereotype. Uh, if I say, uh, what are Australians like? <laughs> what was that? Sorry, I can't hear very well. They're great. Okay, they're great. Fair enough. Uh, what are Chinese like? Tight. There you go. <laughs> but you see, this is the point. If I said that as a Korean man, it would be very, very offensive. But a Chinese man said it. And I can say, oh, well, I agree with, uh, <laughs> I, I agree with Ian. Uh, that's kind of what Paul's doing here, isn't it? One of your own has said that Cretans are always liars, and I agree with him. But it's not just Cretans who are liars, are they? For you and I also live in a world where lies, lies are common. We live in a world of fake news. We live in a world where people are happy to present as being honest, but are often dishonest for, for a selfish gain. We live in a world like this because the ruler of this world is Satan himself, who is the father of lies. And so it's no surprise that there will be people who tell you religious lies that seek to take you away from the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. And friends, this is not an academic issue. For we know people in our very own congregation who have fallen to false teaching. And so I want to say that it is very important for you and me, and especially if you are a new Christian amongst us this morning, to grow in our discernment so that we can spot what is true and spot what is false. 
For not everything that claims to be true Christianity is true Christianity. Legalistic teaching that says Christianity is all about what you do in keeping the rules rather than what Jesus has done for you on the cross to bring you forgiveness and the hope of eternal life is not true Christianity. It's false teaching. Joel Osteen and the prosperity gospel is not true Christianity, but false teaching. Liberal theology that says, you know, we need to kind of um, reinterpret the Bible for the 21st century because, you know, our world has kind of moved on from the things that God says here. It's not true Christianity, but false teaching. And if you swallow this kind of teaching, hook, line, and sinker, you will walk away from Jesus and eternal life. And that's why Paul is so firm in our passage today. Did you notice that he says, silence them? If you spot false teaching, silence them. Don't kind of, you know, cajole them or kind of seek to persuade them and that sort of thing. Silence them, says Paul. So what is true Christianity? What is the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness? Well, I'll give you a, a little bit of a teaser. True Christianity is not about keeping rules, but it is about the grace of God. It's not about what you and I do to earn our salvation. It is about the grace and kindness of Jesus who did it all for us at the cross. And so if you want to grow in your knowledge of the truth and grow in your godliness, you do it by understanding God's grace to you. By understanding how kind and generous and loving God has been to sinners like you and me. But more of that in following weeks. For Titus is really all about the grace of God that brings salvation and which leads to godliness. And so uh, really looking forward to uh, the rest of this book. Uh, keep on joining us uh, in future weeks so that we can explore it further. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that we are not saved by our own works, but by the finished work of Jesus on the cross for us. We thank you that salvation is by grace. And we ask that by your grace, you would help us to grow in godliness and live a life of serving you and serving others, full of joy. Father, we thank you for the leaders in our church family. Uh, we thank you for their godly character and the way they serve us in teaching and through their example. We pray that as we begin a new year, that you would strengthen them for the year ahead and help them to be growing in godliness so that they may be above reproach. Help them to teach what is true and oppose what is false out of love for Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life and for the sake of others who need to hear this truth. But Father, we thank you most of all that you are a God who never lies, who always delivers on your promises, and who has given us your truth in your word. And please help us to be a church that loves the truth 
and we ask that you would help us all to grow in godliness and Christ-like character and that you would give many in our church family a noble desire to lead others for the sake of the kingdom.